Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, welcome along. This week on Writer's Routine, we're chatting to Shane Dunphy. He is an inspirational memoir and crime author as well, uh, the best-selling writer of 17 books. Uh, And he's working with Audible now on a new series of audiobooks. It's true crime. It's called Stories from the Margins. Now, we talk about why he loves having an editor, uh, also what he thinks of the genre and what he thinks of what other people think of the genre uh, and how he fell in love with reading beauty and reading simplicity, and how his goal is to keep that up with his work. My entire journey as a writer has been about trying to re- recreate that and to try and, 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 and do that myself. And, and yeah, the idea that simplicity of language can be a beautiful thing and can be something which makes your books accessible to a much wider range of people. Nothing pleases me more than when somebody contacts me over social media and says to me, your books got me back reading again. I hadn't read in years, I hadn't read since I was in school, or I had a horrible experience in school with some teacher telling me that I was stupid and I became afraid of I became afraid of books. I felt that books weren't for me, but that something that I wrote tempted them to come back in and, and want to rediscover. Um, you know, that that that's it's a special thing when that happens. So yeah, economy of language is something that I feel is is very important. Stay there. There is more on the way with Shane Dunphy in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Hello. Thank you for being back. Hope you're well. This is Writer's Routine. Uh, My name's Dan. It's where we take a look inside an author's writing day and space to see how they get all their stuff done and their words down. Now, this episode of the show is supported by the fantastic folk over at Faber Academy. If you're after industry experts teaching you the tricks of writing, they are who you need to turn to. It's a creative writing school set up by the publishing house Faber, and they offer so many different courses to improve your writing, uh, whatever level you're at. There's fiction, there's memoir, there's poetry courses across so many different across so many different time frames as well to suit your day. Now, if you're just getting started, uh, writing at night after the day job maybe, and you can't spare that much time, you can do a one-day beginner's workshop. If you're a little bit further down the line, they've got six-month advanced courses as well, and they've got everything in between. Uh, And now, at the moment, they're all online as well, so you can work it around whatever you're up to. Uh, It's not just writing courses. They also offer a fantastic manuscript assessment, and it can help out 
at whichever stage of the process you are at. You can have an honest, no-nonsense assessment of whether your work, whether what you've done so far, whether it's up to scratch, whether it's worth pushing on with, they will give you that. You can also get a full comprehensive run-through of everything about your novel. They will really comb it through. You can do it with them, a bit like an MOT. Uh, They offer that as well. You can also have a submission review to make sure it's in the best possible shape to share with an agent before you send it off. That one's really important. Uh, There is so much on the website, faberacademy.co.uk, to help out with your work and to put it in the best place to get it published. Uh, And you can save money with this show. Use the code writersroutine at 21 to get a 10% discount on any online course or manuscript assessment. Use it at the checkout over at faberacademy.co.uk. Writersroutine21, you will get 10% off. Uh, And the code runs right the way through till September as well. So you've got time to think it through. Maybe you want to make the most of it over the summer holidays, whatever summer holiday we kind of have this year after everything that's been going on. Uh, it's Writer's Routine 21 to get 10% off any online course or manuscript assessment over at faberacademy.co.uk. Now this week on the show, Shane Dunphy joins us. His new work is with Audible. It's a series of audiobooks called Stories from the Margins. It's true crime. Shane started his work as, a, as an inspirational memoir writer, which are those books, uh, I'm not saying this to be funny, just to give you an image of, of what they are, what they look like, just to help you out. Uh, have you ever seen the Gavin and Stacey episode where Gwen, Stacey's mum, uh, where she's sat on the sofa and she's reading a book, it's called something like Daddy Please No, and then she finishes it and she immediately picks up the new one, uh, like Mummy Please Stop. And she remarks that oh, he's had a terrible time of it. Well, it's those kind of books. Uh, they are fantastically well written, though, from Shane Dunphy. And he talks us through it brilliantly, what he thinks about the inspirational memoir genre, what he thinks about what other people think of the inspirational memoir genre and how jokes like that one in Gavin and Stacey, how they sit with him. Now, it all stems from his work as a child protection officer in Ireland for 15 years and his time on the front line of social care. That all led to his stories, including the number one bestseller, Wednesday's Child. He then went on to write a series of crime novels about the criminologist David Dunnigan. And now he's got this new Audible series out, True Crime, Stories from the Edge. We talk about why a challenge from his mum got him into writing. He also fastidiously takes us through uh, his his writing office that he's uh, managed to build for himself and how stunningly set up that looks. Uh, we talk about how a, a very simple 10-step walk completely changes his attitude to work. And, and walking's a big part of Shane's process as well, because walking with a voice recorder is vital to him getting the story down. As I say, it's a brilliant chat. Shane is a proper storyteller in every sense of the word. I think you'll enjoy this. Now, it was all recorded through Skype, so bits of me in it are a little bit patchy, but I've edited most of me out. It's mostly Shane in this episode, so it's all good. Bear with that, and we get into it, as we always do, with what Shane sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I have three different places that I write. Um... The one that I use most often is what I refer to as my writing shed. And uh, that's where I am at the moment. So it is at the back of my garden. Uh, There is a window to my right, which looks out on basically kind of a patch of lawn. And there's sort of a hedgerow behind it. And uh, it's wonderful having that because as I write, I can hear the sound of birds. Um, So we have in the garden, we have wrens and robins and song thrush 
And so my, my writing is usually accompanied by that, which is very relaxing. Uh, I, like I said, I sit on a big old red kind of squashy couch that used to be our family couch. But when it was about to be jettisoned, when we got a new one, I um, gave it a stay of execution and asked if it could be brought out to the shed for me to use to sit on. So it's extremely comfortable, a little bit threadbare, but very, very comfortable to my a little bit further to my right, a little bit closer to the kind of the end of the shed is a, a series of bookcases. And that has books from all of my favorite writers. It's a kind of a selection which I uh, took from the house and brought out specifically really just for inspiration. And often if I'm stuck in the middle of a passage or, you know, a particular plot point that I'm trying to work out, I will pull some of those books off the shelf and have a read through, um, sometimes just to kind of get the creative juices flowing. And I have the shed sort of decorated with a whole load of, um, obviously there's my own book covers, which I've um, copied and I, I have those up on the wall, kind of like a, a gallery really of, of, of my own um, creation. And then I also have images of people like Charles Dickens. I have a, a kind of a, a, a picture that I photoshopped together myself with images of lots of different writers that I like and admire. Uh, kind of like almost a collage of those, everybody from Ernest Hemingway to Robert B. Parker to Neil Gaiman. Um, and I have that kind of more or less facing me on the wall. But then I also have images of musicians that I like because I'm a musician as well. And so I have Ronnie Drew from the Dubliners and Shane McGowan and Tom Waits and Justin Towns Earl and Andy Irvine. Um, I, I suppose what I tr I'm a little bit like a magpie when it comes to um, sort of creators. And I, I've decorated the shed with all of this really as a way of just kind of everywhere I look, there's something interesting. And um, and for me, that, that that's quite important. My wife always says that when you walk in, it's like my, my personality has exploded all <laughs> over the room, um, which I don't think that she means that fondly. Um, she always says that, you know, she feels that men um, really never stop being little boys or teenagers, kind of, you know, putting posters up in their in their rooms. And um, I mean, the, my office at work, like I teach college a couple of days a week and my office at work is very, very similar, you know, it, 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 except the, the pictures that I have in the office at work, I have framed to make them look a little bit more tidy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it, to be honest with you, it's a space that when I go in there and I close the door, I immediately feel very relaxed and I know that I'm in the writing zone. It, it, and it's important that geographical move as well from the house to the back of the garden. It, it, it's literally about 10 paces. But once I, I make that journey and I walk through that door and I'm in my writing shed, I know that this is the place where, where, where creativity happens. And I, I can feel my whole body almost changing, my posture, the whole lot. I relax, I, I'm calm. And as soon as I sit down and I open the laptop, I'm, I'm ready to go. If you've got if this creative comfort zone that you've built for yourself, but you also mentioned that you write in in three spaces yeah i have a study i have a study in the house which i share with my wife and with my daughter and um, we have a kind of a printer in it which a lot of our family come in to use as well and sometimes friends will come and print up stuff there because i find these days people don't have printers uh but we have one it's kind of a printer photocopier that we got a number of years ago uh because back in the day when i started writing 
to send your manuscript off, you had to print it up. Um, email wasn't really done. And I had an agent for quite a few years who didn't own either a computer or a mobile phone. So he was my first editor. He edited my, my work for anybody else. So we got a really heavy duty printer a few years back. Um, so this space um, in the house is one that I share and it's always a bit higgledy-piggledy. And we're also storing some furniture in there for a friend of mine um, who recently sold a house. So um, there's a, an old piano in there and a couple of accordions and um because of the of of, of covid uh we've had to bring an awful lot of stuff from the college into the house as well because now we, we're, we're correcting work here and assignments from students so the office in the house is um a bit of a mess and i find it a little bit harder to work among that kind of chaos i did it for years dan for years and years and years i did for a while i actually worked in our kitchen um, in the house of people coming and going. And I wrote three or four books there with, with people literally coming in to make tea and, and, and people hoovering around me and stuff like that. But I reached a point five or six years ago where I just realized I can't do that anymore. And I started to understand that if you want to be a professional writer, you kind of need to have that space. You need to have somewhere that you can take yourself away, kind of out of circulation. Also, it, when I'm at home, I'm the guy that knows where stuff is in the house. So if I'm in the house, if, I, if I'm in the study, the living room is right across the hallway from me. And people are likely to be coming in saying, you know, um, dad, where's the, you know, where, where, where's the mug that, you know, granddad always likes or something like that. And I'll, I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll go and find it. And that immediately then takes you out of the zone. I, I find when I'm writing, I need to get into a rhythm. I'm not one of these people who can just sit down and write for half an hour in a break. I, I, I need a run at it. I need several hours. I need to immerse myself. And, and once that's broken, I find it, it, it'll take me an hour to get back into it. It's interesting. You've got this, this, this creative zone that you've made for yourself and, mm -hmm. and you, you physically, you know, you're walking there, that physical journey is you switching on. Can you kind of feel yourself grow into it? as you as you, as you write for hours locked away there yes i can and i i'm i'm trying at the moment for the last couple of years i'm trying to be more workmanlike in how i approach the writing process um in that now i i've i've gone job share in my teaching so i teach two and a half days a week and i write two and a half days a week um, so I'm teaching Monday, Tuesday and a half day, Wednesday, when lunchtime comes on a Wednesday, that's my writing time. And so I'll write for that the afternoon on the Wednesday, and then I'll try and write office hours on Thursday and Friday. This is a very new thing for me. And it is taking a conscious effort because the way I did it for years, because I, my, my writing would be done over holidays. So Christmas holidays, Easter holidays, and particularly summer holidays, I would put in 15 sometimes 16 or more hour days to get a book done uh there was a, three summers ago i wrote four books in four months <laughs> because i had to because that was you know that i was under contract and deadline to do that now if, if you can imagine what those days were like mm. you know and and there was a time when i thought that that was the only way that i could do it that I, I would have to, to to get into that. And literally I'd be getting up in the morning at maybe 6, 6.30 
and I would work for a couple of hours. I'd have a very hurried breakfast. I'd get back to it, very hurried lunch. And I'd work through um, my wife, if she was feeling, um, you know, uh, nice to me, would, would maybe, you know, call me in for a dinner that she prepared. I'd eat quickly and go back out and work through till maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And that's the kind of writing day that I was putting in. But I, by the end of four months, I was a mess. I, I looked like somebody who'd been shipwrecked on a desert island. <laughs> it teaches uh, you a lot, though, I'd imagine. Um, it, it was it was an, an interesting experience. And, you know, of those four books, one of them was shite, if you pardon the expression. The other three were pretty good, though. So, so um, I burned out by the time book four came around. But the first three were pretty good. And two of them, two of them ended up on the bestseller lists. So I am at the point where, you know, during those days, if the phone rings, um, I'm a little bit vexed by it because I just want to be in that space. Um, like I, I, I quite enjoy the process of writing. I'm somebody who quite enjoys the solitude of it. I quite enjoy the peace. I enjoy being out in my shed with the birds singing and, um, you know, the laptop on my on my knee and I'm, I'm, I'm hammering away. Uh, when I write nonfiction, I'll have music playing. When I'm writing fiction, I don't. That's my process. Don't ask me why, but that always is. Um, and and I just like that space. And so I, I I get a little bit irritated at the at the interruption. And I feel because these these proper office hours writing days are shorter, I really want to make the best of them. Uh, and I will plan out exactly what I'm going to do. And I, I know I'll, I set myself targets. I, I don't think in terms of words. I know much, most writers do. I think in terms of pages. So I will know kind of on my half day, I'll want to get about 10 pages done. And I'll, I'll work away until I, that, that's kind of the way I gauge it. I try and work away until I get that finished. On, on, a on my longer days, I'd, I'd ideally like to get somewhere between 20 and 30 pages done. Don't always achieve that, but that's the goal that I'll, I'll try and set myself. If you're, um, you know, 20 or 30 pages, if you're hovering around 19 pages and it's getting towards the end of the day, are you... You know, just getting words out almost for the sake of it at times? Uh, no, usually if I'm getting near the end of the day, I will stop, but I may get up earlier the following day to try and to try and make up for it. Uh, I'm not one of these people that will just pump out something for the sake of it. And I'll know. Uh, last Sunday, for example, because because we're in lockdown, nor normally I wouldn't work the weekends, but last because of the fact that we're in lockdown and there's nowhere to go and nothing to do um, at the weekends, what we'll do is my wife is working on, some, on a jigsaw puzzle at the moment. So she'll set up in the kitchen and I'll bring the laptop in and I'll maybe work a little bit more casually. I'll read back through. I'll do a little bit of editing. But last Sunday, I, I, I had an idea that I wanted to work on in the book I'm working on at the moment. And I actually ended up pumping out about 15 pages. But I knew that the last three or four weren't good. I knew the quality wasn't there. I knew that I, I, as you said, I had just pumped out the words to try and get that section finished. And I ended up probably spending about two hours pairing them back and rewriting and trying different things. And um, I worked on it until I got it right. And it was annoying me because I knew that it wasn't to, to the standard that I would have liked. But then there's also there's... with that, Shane, that is it, is it sometimes if you've got that idea that's just come to you and you need to get it out, is there sometimes a joy and a relief in the fact that you have it physically down on paper somewhere and a little bit of work 
can make it much better. Oh yes, and I, I, I love the editing process. I really embrace the editing process. What I usually do is, as I, as I do a chapter, I'll go back as soon as it's finished. As soon as that chapter's finished, I'll read it aloud. That's what I do. I read it aloud. As I'm reading it aloud, I'll hear the rhythm of this sentence isn't right, or this, or if it's dialogue, this isn't the way people would speak. And I'll edit as I go. I'll then give it another read aloud. And then I'll move, if I'm happy, then I'll move on to the next chapter. But when a section is finished, and I tend to write in parts, part one, part two, part three, part four, and each part will have maybe five or six chapters in it. When I get to the end of a part, I'll go back and read the whole thing again and do another edit of that, kind of another tidy up. And of course, then when the whole book is done, I'll do a final polish before I send it into to, to, to my editor. And of course, then you go through all of the different stages of, of, of editing, you know, um, structural edits, copy edits. If it's nonfiction, there'll be possibly even a couple of legal readings. And some people find this that process very intrusive. I have writer friends that don't like it at all and, and feel very defensive about the work that they've done. My attitude is that my editors, their job is to make me look better. Their job is to make the work that I've done um, look much more wonderful than it was when I send it in. Um, so they're all on my side. I, I don't see them as, 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 as being a threat to, to what I've done at all. So I really embrace that process. And to me, actually, you know, the editing is really the craft of writing. That reshaping, that smoothing off the rough edges, that tinkering around with the language, tinkering around with the rhythm. Uh, the last series that I published was um, Stories from the Margins, which was the, the, the Audible only series, true crime series that I did for Audible. And the process of editing for audio was a very new experience to me. And I had a wonderful editor, Martin Fletcher, who, who worked on, on that with me. And just seeing the way he would say to me, if you move this word from here to here in this sentence, the whole thing just breathes better. And as you even read that aloud, you could feel the difference. Something as simple as that. And I, I, I love that. That that's the magic of writing. And that's when you really see the whole thing coming together and coalescing. And I, I think that that's really wonderful. And every book that I've written, the editing aspect of it in particular has been a, a learning experience and an, and an adventure. And I, I really enjoy it. Talking, Talking about, about the learning experience with editing, getting that tip about moving the word for audio lets it breathe. Mm. Is that something that you can take with you for you know, future novels that won't be read out loud as frequently? Yes. I mean, these days, Dan, to be honest with you, audio is such a big part. I'm working on a, a new series at the moment for, um, I've just signed a deal with Book Couture, and I'm working on a, a, a new crime fiction series with them. And I mean, part of the deal is is audio. It's, they're going to be made into audio books. So I've become much more conscious of the fact that now audio is a really big part of how people absorb and consume. But if I look at the first book that I published, which is a book called Wednesday's Child, which was I think of it as my my child protection books, kind of as an inspirational memoir about my time working in child protection. When I read that book now, I cringe a little bit because it feels very overwritten to me. I was very as a first time writer, I was very conscious of the fact that I was writing a book. And it feels a little bit more verbose than it needs to be. I'm probably using words 
that I wouldn't use now and I'm using much more literary sentence structures and things like that. I remember my my that agent that I told you about who didn't own a, a computer, um, <laughs> uh, Jonathan Williams. Jonathan used to say to me back in those days, he'd say to me, Shane, you're throwing the kitchen sink at it, which was his way of telling me you've put in too much here. You told me more than we need. Um, you, you, you've gone at it in too flowery a way. And as I wrote, I remember a book that I wrote, I think it was my fifth or sixth book. I remember having to use that as a case study for a college class that I was that I was teaching. And as I read it aloud to the class, as we went through it as a case study, I realized this is the book where I actually found my voice. It had the horrible title of um, Will Mammy Be Coming Back For Me, which I actually suggested as a joke to my editor at the time. Um, inspirational memoirs tend to have these very overly dramatic kind of angsty titles. Uh, there was a, an, an Irish writer who had a, a series, uh, the first book of which was um, Mammy, He Sold Me For A Packet Of Cigarettes, um, which um, became almost a bit of a joke. I mean, they're a wonderful series and very successful, uh, but that kind of title. And so I suggested this title as a joke. And when, it ha when she agreed to it and wanted to use it, I always felt a little bit kind of cringy about the book and it kind of turned me off it. But when I started reading it, I realized this is the book where I found my voice. And the reason for that is because the language is so sparse. There's no time wasted on over description. It, it's very simple. It's very direct. It's completely plot driven. The dialogue all works. And this is exactly how people speak. Chapters are very short and it's really pacey and punchy and moves along. And as I've progressed and I think as I've developed and evolved as a writer, I've started to understand that, that that's what's really important to me. The story is is everything. People read books because they want to know what happens. They want to know what happens next. They want to keep, you know, the whole term page turner. They want to keep turning that page, get to the end of the chapter. And I, I love constructing books so that each chapter ends in a kind of a cliffhanger to drive people on to the next one. I love constructing little twists and turns and ways to kind of send the reader off thinking it's going to go this way and then it goes the other way. Again, that process really excites me and really interests me. And when, when I start started reading, you know, the, the, the first books that I ever wanted or, or felt really compelled to read were sort of, um, you know, Enid Blyton's famous five novels. And I mean, you know, she wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And the reason that people still read them is because they're bloody good stories and that they they drew children in and made them want to discover the, the, the magic and the joy of reading. And it's because of those plots and it's because of those characterizations and it's because it was something that spoke to people. And I think my entire journey as a writer has been about trying to re recreate that and to try and, 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 and do that myself. And, and yeah, the idea that simplicity of language can be a beautiful thing and can be something which makes your books accessible to a much wider range of people. Nothing pleases me more than when somebody contacts me over social media and says to me, your books got me back reading again. I hadn't read in years, I hadn't read since I was in school, or I had a horrible experience in school with some teacher telling me that I was stupid and I became afraid of I became afraid of books. I felt that books weren't for me, but that something that I wrote tempted them to come back in and, and want to rediscover. Um, you know, that that that's it's a special thing when that happens. So yeah, economy of language is something that I feel is is very important.
I mean, I spent the first, I would say, 10 years of my writing career wondering um, why wasn't I getting invited to literary festivals and things like that. I'd had number one bestsellers. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of media work in Ireland. I'd, I'd done some in the UK and even further afield. Yet I was aware that literary festivals and literary events were happening but I wasn't getting invited to them. And eventually I said to my agent, I said, look, well, you know, I'd love to go along to one of these and kind of maybe meet some of my readers because I'd meet them at book launches and stuff. But even then I kind of, you know, I felt there must be a way of getting out and kind of meeting my public kind of thing. And eventually he said to me, um, you know, people who write inspirational memoirs, literary festivals tend not to invite them along because they're not, it's not really seen as being a, a serious genre. It's not seen as being very literary. And I kind of thought, oh, that's a bit, I, I never knew that. Um, and, and I realized eventually that, yeah, kind of inspirational memoir, people who write those books aren't always seen as being particularly respectable. And um, it, that kind of was, it was a bit of a bugbear for me for a while. And then I, 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 I was asked eventually to start writing crime fiction and I wrote the Donegan series, which also did very well. And again, I eventually realized speaking to another author that um, crime writers aren't always seen as being terribly respectable. And I kind of thought, I am damned, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. I, I'm, I'm seen as being kind of on the literary fringes. But to be honest with you, it got to the point where I kind of think, well, you know, fuck it. Um, OK, I'm a genre writer. This is who I am. Um, you know, I write crime fiction. I write inspirational memoir. I write true crime. And to be honest with you, that's the stuff I like to read. Um, so to hell with it. If if I'm not seen as respectable, I'm okay with that. Uh, very quickly, very... back on your uh, the writing room. Uh, if I were to walk in to your your very creative space, mm. if I if I could find a gap around you that wasn't taken up by a picture of an author or a picture of a musician, <laughs> would I have any clue as to what you were writing about? Would I see uh, post-it notes everywhere, plot points, research material? No, because I keep those on documents on my laptop. Um, I, 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 I'm a big, great man for having files. Um, I have files on my laptop when, when I'm writing a book and I tend to just put everything into those. I also have a recording app, a voice recorder on my phone. And part of my writing process is in the evenings when I'm writing, even if I'm putting in those 16 hour days, I have to find time to get out and walk. So I'm uh, this this crazy person who will go out walking in the mountains near where I live in the middle of the night. And as I'm walking, if you happen to be hiding in the woods near me, you would hear me having conversations with myself about the book. And I, I record these things on my phone as I'm walking. So I'm walking along and I'm saying, OK, in the next chapter, this particular character needs to meet such and such a person and they need to have this conversation and this information needs to be imparted. And this will bring us into this particular event in the following chapter. And I put all of this in. And then the next day when I sit down at the laptop, I will transcribe what I recorded on my phone into a file and um, that, that will then become part of my, my plotting for the book. If you were in my, my writing shed and you were to look at the walls, you might be a bit confused actually as to what kind of an author I am because there's also posters of Star Wars. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of comic books. So I have a selection of images from comics like the Beano and the Dandy and um, the Eagle and 2000 AD and stuff like that. Um, 
yeah, you'd probably be quite confused as to what kind of a writer I was. Behind my head, actually, the the the, the space behind my head, there's a poster from Doctor Who and an Italian, a, a movie poster from Italy of Jaws. So I think you'd be very puzzled, actually, <laughs> as, to, as to what kind of a writer I am. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We've got more with Shane Dunphy in just a sec. Very quickly, before we get back to it, let me just remind you, if you're enjoying the episode, if you've learned any tips from Shane that you think might just affect the way that you tell your stories, I mean, any uh, tips in the 150-odd episodes that we've brought you now that have really helped the way that you work, uh, you can say thank you to us in any way you can. One of those ways is at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. By pledging a little bit a month to help us out, whatever you can spare, you get our unending, undying thanks. You also get some merch, and there is a chance for your book to sponsor the show. Today it is Faber Academy. Uh, next month it could be you. Patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Uh, maybe if you've had a book out over the last month and, and the uh, over the last year, sorry, and the uh, the release of it hasn't been quite what you hoped. Well, let us give it all the plug that I'm sure your work deserves. Patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Just a little bit goes an incredibly long way over there. If you want to see us carry on bringing you interviews with the greatest authors around as often as we can so you can peek inside their working day. Uh, uh, pledging a little bit really helps that happen over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Let's get back to it with Shane Dunphy talking about his brand new Audible audiobook series, Stories from the Margins. Now in this part, we chat about how he gets into a story. What does he need? Is it a theme? Is it a message? Uh, How does he decide what stories he wants to tell? Also, we chat about the, uh, the responsibility of his work. How does he feel about writing other people's quite often harrowing stories telling telling their tale how does he feel about that you can hear all about it Uh, and uh, we pick things up talking about why he started writing like was he always 
waiting uh, for a book? Like, did he really want to be an author? And he was just waiting for that, that the one thing that he really felt he could do justice to and could tell. Or was he just working, working in child protection with the, the, the stories that he was uh, with every day, the people that he was with, and he thought, you know what, this needs to be told. How did that work? When I was a kid, um, my, one of my earliest memories of my mother is her reading to me, uh, to me and my brother. Um, again, go, going back to Enid Blyton, um, reading, I think Noddy was, is the first book I remember her reading to us, the original Noddy story. And, and then obviously, as I said, the, the famous Five and the Five Find Outers and, and all of that. And the, the Enchanted Wood, the Faraway Tree books were huge. They loom large. Um, in my evolution as a reader and a writer, just the imagination and the creativity of those books. And also I think that they were the, the first experience I had of fantasy writing um, and they had a huge impression on me. Um, I was about six, six years old, I think. And one of the older kids on the street where we lived back when I was growing up, BBC two used to show on a Friday evening, um, the old hammer horror movies. And a, an older kid on our street told us that one of the Dracula films with Christopher Lee was going to be shown. And I got it in my head. I became obsessed with this. We used to get the um, the Radio Times, you know, the, the, the old BBC TV magazine. And I remember they had an article in it about Christopher Lee. And, and, and I remember looking at the pictures. I was still too young to really read the article, but I remember becoming fascinated by it. And I threw a bit of a tantrum and insisted that my mother let me stay up to see this film. And she eventually sat me down and said, look, you're too young to see it. This is not suitable for you. But if you like, if you'd really like to get into horror stories, why don't you write one? This was her challenge to me. If you're really into horror, write a horror story. Brilliant idea. Yeah. So I sat down with pen and paper and an old copy book and I decided I was going to write a horror story. The problem was I'd never seen a horror movie or, or read a horror story at all. I had a, a notion that they obviously, you know, Dracula is a, a vampire, which is a monster. So I was going to write about a monster. So I wrote a story called The Monster from the Green Lagoon. Obviously, subconsciously, I'd come across the monster from the Black Lagoon, but I didn't make that connection until years later. And the problem was, like I said, I didn't know what monsters really did. So in my story, a bunch of, of kids living in an estate very like the one I lived in went to play in a field near their house, which is very like a field near where I lived, which had a bit of a pond in it. And when they went to the field, there was this enormous Godzilla type monster looming up out of the pond. But because I didn't really know what monsters did, he just stood there looking threatening. And the kids went and got their parents and their parents came and got the people, rang the people from the local authority who took the monster away in a truck. And that was my story. Um, but because the kids in this gang had the same names as my mates, when I read the story to them, they loved it. And I got quite a bit of encouragement. And I wrote throughout my, my time in primary school. And this culminated in one of my stories being published when I was 11 in a book um, which was put together by a community activist group uh, in, in Dublin. And it got quite a bit of publicity. And um, there's a, a, a late a, a Friday evening that used to be published, used to be shown on a Friday evening um, talk show in Ireland. It's one of the longest running talk shows in the world called The Late Late Show. And the biggest show of the year is the Christmas toy show in which the host 
it's basically just an advertisement for toys, really. Um, I presume it's sponsored by the toy shops. I don't I don't know the ins and outs of it. But anyway, on this toy show, uh, my book um, with my story in it was there. Uh, there's a whole section where he gets the, the kind of the nerdier kids to sit down and talk about the books that they'd like to get from Santa Claus. And in the background was my book. And I thought, okay, it's in the background. He's not going to talk about it. But at the end of the section, Gay Byrne, who was like the biggest most famous man in Ireland took this book down off the shelf and opened it and opened it onto the page with my story in. Wow. And I had also illustrated it and he pointed out these pictures and he kind of said, look, isn't this brilliant? And I went into school the next, uh, the, the, the following week and thinking I'm going to get the shit kicked out of me and I'm going to get dreadfully bullied. But in fact, I now had a bit of street cred. Uh, because of the fact that I, I effectively I'd been on the late late toy show and that kind of encouraged me but I, I went to secondary school then and had a pretty horrible time in secondary school um, you know I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of it but pretty horrible school run by priests who were not terribly nice to a lot of the kids that were there right, and right. that put me off somehow writing didn't seem to be a vehicle to express that so I ended up um getting into a, rock, a very angry rock band for a few years. Um, and that was how I wrote the songs and I was the front man. And it was seemed to me to be a better way of expressing my anger at society. And because of the experiences that I'd had in secondary school, child protection seemed to be the way to go. Um, if you were to ask me at the time, because I would have repressed an awful lot of what happened in school, I wouldn't have even been able to tell you that I'd had those awful experiences. Um, I believe that it was just that it was better than working in a factory or better than getting a job working on the boats or whatever that a lot of other kids in the area where I grew up in, um, that those were the jobs that they went to do. But now, of course, I can completely see that I just wanted to make sure that what happened to me didn't happen to other kids. So, yeah, I went into child protection and that, to be honest with you, Dan, when I got into it, when I started doing that work, I was completely tunnel visioned about it. It was everything. It was my identity. It was all I wanted to do. It was all I wanted to think about. My, my social life was wrapped up in doing voluntary work with that. I was still playing music, but a lot of the music that I was playing was done in a therapeutic way to kind of help draw kids out, you know, to help them to think about their experiences. And I, I did that for 15 years. I did a bit of academic writing about it, but it wasn't until I ended up, um, I would have been 28 years old, and I ended up having a car accident and I ended up in a wheelchair and you can't really do child protection, uh, which often involves, you know, very physical stuff when you're in a wheelchair. So I was in a wheelchair for six months and my wife had to go back to work. I was kind of at home, um, kind of getting myself back together again. And while I was at home, I kind of got back into reading for pleasure and did a little bit of writing, a little bit of journaling and stuff like that. But when I was fit to go back to work again, I was, still wasn't physically able to get back and do child protection. So I ended up teaching, teaching people to be child protection workers. And as I was doing that, I'd been doing that for a few years and started to feel like I was a bit of a fraud. Um, because I was teaching people to do this work that I felt I was no longer able to do myself. Now, at this stage, I'm, I'm back walking again, but I'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm still not really terribly physically fit. I still have a bit of a limp. I'm on a stick at that point. And so one evening um, I'd been doing a Ph.D. thesis. Uh, 
in which I was sort of trying to lay out my ideas about what child protection should be all about. And my academic supervisor, I was writing a chapter of theory followed up by a chapter, which was a case study. And my academic supervisor said to me, these case studies are telling me way more about what it is you want to say than your academic work, which probably says something about my abilities as an academic. But anyway, um, he said, I think that these weren't being published on their own. So we published some in a couple of journals and they got a really positive reaction. And eventually he said, I think that there's a book here. So at his encouragement, I, I, one afternoon I sat down and I took three of these case studies and I threw in a bit of dialogue, a bit of descriptive stuff, sent them to an Irish publisher and um, she pretty much offered to buy them on the spot. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. And it's everything you're not supposed to do to get a book deal. You know, they say you shouldn't send in stuff unsolicited. You shouldn't send in stuff unrepresented. I literally just posted it in. Well, I, I picked up the phone first and said, do you think you might be interested in this? And she said, well, look, send them in and we'll see. And within a matter of weeks, I had a book deal. And a few months later, I had a number one bestseller. The beginning for me is always, what, what do I want to say? Um, my my, my, my nonfiction books always have a kind of a theme, if you like. There's always something that I want to communicate. So I, I generally know the stories that I want to tell. And often there'll be two or three stories, and you'll see this across my nonfiction work, and the same thing applies to stories from the margins. Some of the stories that I present as happening concurrently don't necessarily, or didn't necessarily, happen concurrently. So I have to weave those together. So usually there'll be a period of maybe a month, maybe even two months in which I'm, I'm plotting that I'm working out how these stories are going to, to interweave. Um, also, while I'm doing that, I'm thinking about how can I change some of the details so that I'm going to anonymize the people who are participants in this. Um, and so there'll be, there's little tricks that you can do that I've learned over the years. So for example, if you're talking about a family and there is five people in the family, you say that there's six, you might change the gender of some of the participants. Um, you always make sure that if you're writing about, particularly if you're writing about Ireland, because Ireland is so small, um, that you just kind of give very vague descriptions of where places are and you maybe change the names. Um, Pacing for me is critically important. So you've talked about it, particularly with, with an audio book, there needs to be bite-sized chunks, you know, enough for somebody to listen to while they're walking their dog or while they're commuting to work. So I will actually write out a fairly detailed chapter breakdown of what's going to go in where and how everything is going to, to play out. With the stories from the margins as well, because I wanted it to be part memoir and part true crime, I spent a lot of time researching. So for example, book one in the in the Stories from the Margin series is called Bleak Alley, and it's about an experience I had with kids in a in a street gang. So I spent a long time um in you know researching the history of street gangs in Ireland. Um, going right back to Celtic times. So I would intersperse my chapters of, of the story of my interaction with these kids with almost case studies, if you like, or or essays 
about the history of gangs in Ireland. So, you know, I talked about Celtic clans. I talked about faction fighting, which occurred immediately after the famine, where families would literally meet at prearranged points and points and beat the living daylights out of each other, often because of, of, of arguments that they couldn't even remember what they were about. I spoke about the, the real story behind the Peaky Blinders. I spoke about the history of animal gangs, which were these absolutely ferocious street gangs in Dublin in the 1940s and 50s. And I brought it right up to the kind of the gang war in Limerick, which was going on in Ireland in the, the first decade of the, the 21st century. And I, I weave all of these in as a way really of putting the story that I'm telling into a context so that people can see, because everyone has a notion of what Ireland is like. Everyone has this idea, you know, Ireland is this place of, you know, great writers and, you know, traditional Irish music and everybody's very hospitable and it's quite rural and all the rest of it. Ireland isn't like that at all. It is and it isn't, you know, there's so many other different aspects to it. And I really wanted to prove the that all of this has a context and this is not new and this is actually not that bizarre at all. The second book in the series, um, which is called The Bad Place, was about um, child trafficking. And again, I put a lot of time into looking at statistics around child abduction in Ireland. I spoke about a series of disappearances that took place in the 1990s. And again, that book received such a positive um, reception um, in that actually the Irish organization, it's called Mechpaths, and it's the organization which is actually trying to raise awareness of victims of, of trafficking, actually came out and endorsed the book without my even asking them to, and encouraged people to go out and, and, and read it. And the final book in the series, which is, is number one in, um, in its category in the true crime charts at the moment on Audible, is about um, institutional abuse in Ireland, particularly of people with special needs. And again, I was able to write there about, um, you know, kind of alt-right groups and their attitude towards people with special needs. I was able to write about the terrible experimentation that went on in institutions in Ireland in the 1940s and 50s, where people with special needs were actually rented out to drug companies and medical companies for them to test new vaccines and medical procedures on and again these are stories that a lot of people are not even aware of but i'm able to tell my own story of my interactions and and, and these cases that i've been involved in but also then i have the opportunity to explore other stories you know historic cases in ireland and i have to tell you it's it's been a wonderful and incredibly satisfying partnership with audible it was a little bit nerve unnerving for me uh, when i was asked to narrate the series myself but um, once I got over the fear of that, I actually discovered I really enjoyed it. And it, it's almost like bringing the book to life in a different way. What's your responsibility as an author when you're telling these stories, Shane? And I guess how much do you think of it? Is it, you know, you're telling someone else's story and they're not altogether normally that pleasant of a story. Um, uh, but, you're, you're, but you want these books to sell. You want these, these books to, you know, as you said, you want people to keep on reading. That's yeah. the point of being an author. What is your responsibility when you write these things down? I think the responsibility is to be truthful. Um, I'm lucky in that with When Says Child, when I wrote it, I had no idea of that. I just wanted to, my, my first book, I just wanted to write a year in the life of somebody doing this type of work. When that was so successful, I immediately was barraged with people approaching me, asking me to tell their story. Mm. So it actually became something that, I mean, I would be walking down the street. This, this genuinely happens and still does. I'd be walking down the street and somebody would come up to me, you know, you're Shane Dunphy, you wrote those books. I've got a story for you. Uh, and so every book subsequently since then 
um, I've either been approached, people have come to me asking me to write, or I, I kind of felt, okay, this is a story I would want to tell, and I would approach them and say, do you mind if I if I tell this story. I mean, Bleak Alley genuinely came about because I got contacted over social media by a kid who was in a gang saying, I want to tell, I want you to tell the story of how the gang saved my life. And I, it initially started out as a newspaper article, but I knew that there was more to it. And, you know, another story in that book, uh, I talk about a lady called Jolene, whose son um, was a drug dealer and who started using his own product and he ended up owing the, the gang a huge amount of money. And when he couldn't pay, the gang knocked on her door and said, OK, the debt now falls to you. And again, she approached me wanting me to write about that. So every story that I've written since then, people have come to me and asked me that they wanted their story told. So my responsibility is, I believe, to get the truth out there, because stories from the margins, the, the name, the title, we all live in worlds that we feel are quite familiar and quite comfortable. I, I live in suburban middle Ireland, okay? I live in a very nice, very quiet housing estate. However, because of the work I do, I know that within a 10 minute walk, there is somebody going through something horrendous. And the stories that I tell, gangs, trafficking, institutional abuse, the marginalization of people, who are simply just a little bit different or whose lives are a little bit different. This is happening all around us, but most of the time we don't see it. We choose to walk by and look the other way because it's easier for us. Or to be honest with you, we don't even see it. And um, there's a famous story of when Columbus first arrived on the, at the Americas. Apparently there was his ships were moored off the coast within view of the beach for days before they landed. But the, the, the Native Americans didn't even see them because they did see them, but they were so un, so different and so unusual that their brain didn't register that they were there. And I think a lot of people, a lot of us suffer from that. If it's something which it makes us feel uncomfortable, we just zone it out. What I want to do in Stories from the Margins is take you by the hand and bring you over to the shadows that exist all around us and, and shine a light and say, look, this is what's going on. The fact that the books have been so successful, and to be honest with you, it has really felt like my career has kind of kick-started all over again. I mean, the opportunities and, and, and the amount of people that have contacted me about them has, has really been um, humbling. Uh, the fact that they've been so successful tells me that people really wanted to hear them, and people have been, um, I suppose, have had their eyes opened and have, have been... Uh, fascinated is the wrong word, but are, 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 are definitely interested and definitely moved by the stories that I've been privileged to be able to tell. And I mean, look, as you say, I, I'm in the stories, you know, I, I'm bringing you through and I'm showing you this is what happened. But I'm, I'm very conscious of trying to present myself in as real a light as I possibly can in this. Um, you know, in, in The Bad Place, I talk about myself running away from something awful something that I experience. Um, I, 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 I flee. I, I'm too frightened. You know, throughout my, my, my nonfiction books, you will encounter me, um, you know, presenting myself sometimes as a bit of an asshole. I can be very arrogant. I can be confrontational. I can be judgmental. You will encounter me, you know, throwing up from fear. You will encounter me um, 
you know, drinking myself into oblivion sometimes to avoid the pain. You will encounter me in, in all kinds of very, very negative lights because that's what people are like. And sometimes when you're going through extremists, you don't always make the right choices. Um, and I, you know, I want to show that, yeah, these things are difficult and these things are unpleasant. And as you say, some of these stories are not comfortable, but they're stories that we do need to hear and we need to own that our society has created these realities and, uh, and not shy away from them. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thanks so much to Shane Dunphy. His new series, Stories from the Margins, is out now as an audiobook on Audible. Uh, Get the link in the podcast notes and over at writersroutine.com. Now this week, the episode of the show is supported by Faber Academy. You can get a 10% discount on any online course or one of the brilliant manuscript assessments that they do right the way through until September. Use the code WRITERSROUTINE21, WRITERSROUTINE21, when checking out over on the website. Head there now. Have a look. They've got a thorough catalogue. So much going on over the next few months to help your work, to help your writing. See what you fancy. Then when you're ready to check out, use the code WRITERSROUTINE21. Save yourself 10% over at faberacademy.co.uk. Next week, uh, you can hear from Lucy Clark. She's talking about her new thriller, The Castaways. And listen to this for for a hook. Uh, It's all about two sisters who have a fight in an airport. One, because of the fight, doesn't end up boarding the plane, but then the plane crashes. And then the other sister, who we know is still alive, must find out what really happened. You can hear all about it with Lucy Clark next week on Writer's Routine. I'll see you then. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 